Thank you, welcome. We're talking today about spacing babies. You knew there was a term. It's the amount of time between each baby. Makes sense, spacing babies. What are some factors we should take into consideration when spacing babies? Because I think as we're getting older, well, we want as many as we can have. What are the things we need to think about? So, look, I think you bring up an excellent point, as many as we can have. So, uh, it's something I do see in my practice that especially amongst couples who've struggled to conceive that they often can't have as many babies as they'd ideally like. And playing the game cleverly and being proactive and having a think from the outset as to how many children you might like um, can help us try and make a plan together so that we can try and make that a reality. When we're younger especially if we conceive easily, uh, sometimes we feel that, you know, it might be nice to have some some time between kids. I, I think that's, you know, really reasonable. I mean, firstly, it's really nice to spend that one-on-one time with your baby and bonding and, and feeding and just enjoying their development and interactions as a family is so special and you never really get that time again. Actually, if you have more than one, you never get that time again with your others. I mean, you only ever get that with your first because by the time you're having <laughs> number two, yeah, there's, there's no chilling out on the couch when pregnant either. <laughs> but, um, yeah, look, it, it is a, um, you know, having, having a, a, a big interval between kids. So sometimes there has to be a compromise. I always say if you're over 38, don't wait. Because once you've had one, if you wait three or four years, no there might not be. And how, so you say don't wait, so you have the baby, then how long after you've had a baby? I usually recommend, especially if couples have struggled to have their first baby, mm-hmm. uh, that I need to see them about a, a year after they've, they've given birth. Okay. As, at the latest. At the latest. Yeah. So you could see them earlier. Yeah. But look, usually fertility treatment wouldn't start again until they'd weaned, so until they'd stopped breastfeeding. Now, not everyone breastfeeds, but it is ideal. So, um, you know, a lot of people do try very hard to breastfeed and not to say anything negative about women who can't breastfeed. Not everyone can. But if you are feeding... Yeah, there are strong advantages. So not just nutritional but also bonding and allergy prevention and things like that. So feeding is is really important and um, certainly you wouldn't necessarily want to cut that shorter than six months. But there are some some women who might decide to put some embryos in the freezer yep. if they um, didn't have some already mm-hmm. and if they were planning to delay having a child. If, and, you know, there's also reasons why couples delay having another child. I mean, sometimes there's issues like postnatal depression. Yep. Um, sometimes there are financial pressures yes. um, and needing to return to work. Uh, there's a whole variety of different pressures. Sometimes people think they're happy with one and then change their mind yes. and um, decide that they'd, they'd like another. Um, so, look, there's lots of reasons. And at the end of the day, couples have to do what's right for them. There are sometimes medical reasons why you need to delay. Like, for example, I generally would recommend if you've had a cesarean birth that you need to allow time for your wounds to heal optimally before going through another pregnancy at least six months. Yeah, especially um, some people say 12 months if you desire a normal birth, if possible, with your next child. Are there any advantages in 
in having the vaginal birth after cesarean? Well, look, you know, there are. It's like it's like anything. There are pros and cons of of lots of different things. So, the advantages of VBAC or vaginal birth after cesarean are that um, the recovery can be less rather than an abdominal operation. Um, a VBAC is a birth through the natural birth canal, and um, that can be an easier recovery. Um, the caveat for that is it's an easier recovery if you don't have major pelvic floor trauma because that can make it not such an easy recovery. But if, if you have a normal birth of a normal size baby and you don't have terrible pelvic floor trauma, um, it can be a much easier recovery and, um, and that can help with, you know, kind of lots of things. It can help with looking after a child, you know, your ability to be mobile. Um, yeah, and also, um, you know, things like breastfeeding, the milk might come in easier if you don't have such a, um, you know, kind of um, such so much demands on your body in terms of recovering from a caesarean. Um, the disadvantages of VBAC are obviously it might fail, so you might have the uh, worst of both worlds, which is a labour and a caesarean, which means, and in that context, the caesarean is riskier than an elective caesarean. It comes an emergency. And um, so things like having uh, heavy bleeding or postpartum hemorrhage, as it's called, is, is higher. And um, risks of things like needing a blood transfusion are higher. I mean, the disadvantage of a VBAC is that you may be at risk of rupture of your caesarean scar. Um, and that can be catastrophic for both mum and baby. And um, sometimes requires hysterectomy. But, I mean, the risk of that is, is very, very low. And in terms of how we manage VBAC from an obstetric point of view, I mean, you know, I, I always say I'm a retired obstetrician <laughs> because now I, I function mainly as a, as a fertility specialist and I don't deliver babies anymore because I would not be able to deliver all the babies that I make. <laughs> um, but I've got a wonderful network of obstetricians that I refer to and also lots of my patients decide to have their care in the Australian public health system, which is excellent. Uh, but... You know, in terms of, um, you know, obstetric management of VBAC, certainly you wouldn't be inducing labour on someone with a scar in their uterus. Um, certainly you wouldn't let them go too post-dates, so too much overdue. And certainly in terms of advising women whether it's a good idea or not, you'd be mindful of how big their baby is likely to be, although that can be overestimated and underestimated on ultrasound. Ultrasound's not perfect at estimating baby size, but it's... Together with clinical examination, you can have an idea. Um, so, you know, these things can be used to, to you know, kind of try and more personalise a risk. Um, and at the end of the day, it has to be a woman's choice. And we support, you know, within, within the boundaries of, um, you know, what is a safe thing to do, you know, we should support uh, women's choice around birth, which is, after all, in many cases, a natural process. I guess the reason for cesarean in the first place something to think about as well because that might help prognosticate a little bit as to how likely a woman is to be successful. Like for example if she had an obstructed labour with a very normal sized baby in a normal position then that's probably something that might indicate that she may not have success with VBAC whereas if she had a cesarean for something like a breech presentation or and it was elective um or if she had a placenta in the wrong spot and for that reason, um, you know, vaginal birth wasn't considered a good idea because of the bleeding risk, um, you know, those things don't really prognosticate badly on the chance of having a normal birth subsequently. I guess the other thing to think about is um, how many children she'd like to have because 
um, the more cesareans you have, the riskier the next pregnancy. Yeah, so certainly there's, I mean, there are some people around who've had multiple caesareans, but but most times, you know, as you do have more and more caesars, um, the lining or the, the muscle at the front of the uterus becomes thinner and thinner, and so the risk for the next pregnancy is more significant. So, um, and the risk of things like the placenta growing into the muscle of the, the uterus, things like placenta accreta or percreta, as it's called, um, goes up. It's when the placenta grows into the muscle of the uterus. So... The placenta is meant to be this organ that sheds when you give birth and so it's meant to just implant into the interface between the uterus and the baby into what's called the decidua or the lining of the uterus that sheds um, and is there throughout a pregnancy but then sheds. Whereas you can have a placenta that is an invasive placenta and it can go into the wall of the muscle and the more surgeries you've had, the more likely it is that that will happen. It's statistically more common in women who've had caesareans than not. It can happen to anybody, but it's more common if you've had caesareans and the more caesareans you have, the more likely that will happen. And that can be a catastrophe because the placenta can, in these cases, act like an invading tumour and it can have this huge blood supply and it can mean that when you deliver your baby you might need a a hysterectomy under circumstances that are quite dangerous. So, um, you know, that, that is more common if you have multiple caesareans. Um, and, you know, how women feel about it is really important, you know, kind of... You can equally argue the other way. You can say, well, you've had an abdominal operation before and your pelvic floor is intact, so why would you risk having a third-degree tear and, you know, risking things like prolapse and incontinence later in life, which are kind of an unspoken... Um, we don't. We, I mean, it's a burden. Yeah, exactly. There are, there are benefits and... Um, you know, kind of it's, it's practically unheard of or very rare these days to see things like obstetric prosodentia, which is when the uterus kind of basically falls out the vagina. Um, but in third world countries, <laughs> well, places where caesareans are not available, that happens all the time. And, you know, you have women who are, you know, ostracised from society and, you know, fecally incontinent and incontinent of urine all the time because their pelvic floor has been damaged by childbirth. Um, sometimes also tragically affected by the loss of a baby in those contexts um, with prolonged birth um, related trauma without obstetric intervention. Yeah, so look, you know, a bit off topic, but, you know, these things are important also. And, you know, I think as obstetricians these days, it's really important to give women full autonomy. You have to talk to them about the risks of doing nothing as well as the risk of doing something. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so certainly, though, back to fertility, if you've had a caesarean for whatever reason, be it by choice or be it by um, obstetric indication, um, it's it's wise to wait at least six months before having another baby. And then, and, and I suppose, if you've had your first, tre- your first baby through IVF and you've got some embryos in the bank, that's also a little bit easier because you don't... Yeah, to some degree. I mean, it depends. So, for example... Um, I guess, I guess it's what kind of embryos are they? You know, it's not necessarily a guarantee. Um, remembering that a normal-looking embryo on day five has about a, um, a third of a chance, a third of, of normal-looking embryos will go on to be, you know, 30 to 40% will go on to be a baby, depending on how old you were when you, when you made that embryo as well. Um, because when you're older, there's a higher proportion of abnormal embryos. Now, if you have beautiful-looking embryos in the freezer that have been genetically tested and you know that they've got the right complement of chromosomes, then, you know, each of those has about a 50-50 chance of being a baby. And that's that's the best stat you're going to get with embryos because when we freeze embryos on day five, 
they're still at a very early stage of development and a lot of errors in making a baby um, happen downstream of that time point. So you can put a normal embryo back and it can subsequently make a catastrophic error, be it a developmental error um, or an anatomical error and that can result in a miscarriage so or just failure to register a pregnancy. So certainly having embryos in the freezer is an excellent backup plan but you've got to have enough and you've got to have the right kind of embryos in the freezer. We also have to acknowledge that in IVF we put the best embryos back first. So we try to minimise the number of embryo transfers that it takes to get a baby for our patient. And so what that means is sometimes what's left may not be the best of their embryos. And so you, you just have to really analyse on a person-to-person basis how many babies they might want to have, where they're at in their reproductive potential, uh, reproductive lifespan, and, you know, kind of how um, critical it is for them to have a gap of a certain duration before trying again for baby number two or baby number three. Um, and um, then just kind of thinking, well, what can, what can I do and what is my patient motivated to do to try and optimise their chance? And some patients might feel that, you know, they've got one beautiful child and if they have another it'll be a blessing but they don't want to go, you know, through proactive treatment to try. Exactly. Whereas others will feel that their dream is to have a bigger family and that's really super important to them and that they really want to be very proactive about it to try and optimise their chance of having that dream come true. So... Really where the patient is coming from is the most important factor. And um, I think just educating um, women and men about fertility is is really important to let them make the decision because um, we know from research that both women and men underestimate when fertility declines by about a decade. And I, it is not an uncommon situation. I actually had a patient like this um, of Friday of last week who came to see me who'd had baby number one naturally and relatively easily at 40. Um, mentioned the Mirena came out and the baby was conceived the next month and natural, easy, normal. Um, waited three years, came back, you know, kind of after having 12 months not conceiving at age 44. Now, you know, my, my heart kind of sinks when I see patients like that just because the ability of, you know, technology to help them with their own egg is not great you know I can throw everything at a patient like that and they may not be successful because at 44 egg quality is dire right there will be miracle babies born to women you know kind of of of, they are they are miracle babies the average woman of 44 will not conceive naturally with her own egg so it is the like like anything fertility is you know, kind of, it ranges broadly within our society. Some people are more fertile than others. And some people are more fertile at an older age than others. But you can't assume that you're going to be like the needle in the haystack, you know. You can't assume you're going to be the outlier. Most people are more normal. And most women at 44 won't have a baby with their own egg. So, I mean, certainly there are factors that influence it. So... One factor is how many eggs they can make in one go because IVF really is an advantage to women at an older age because we can procure more than one egg in a month under natural circumstances. There'll only be one egg in the month released and you either, you know, it's either going to be the egg that just has the golden run and just makes no mistakes and makes a baby or not. And the thing is that, you know, over 40, 
nine out of ten eggs for most women are going to be no good. Um, so that's unfortunately a harsh reality, but it is a reality. Yeah. It's, up, it's, it's an uphill battle. And so, you know, we know from Australian IVF statistics that if you're over 44 um, and you go through an IVF cycle, a fresh IVF embryo transfer, your chance of taking home a baby from that fresh IVF transfer is 1 in 100. So it, it is an uphill battle. And you will have women who conceive... Um, Because remember, with IVF, some women make more than one embryo and some women um, don't make an embryo at all. So averages are affected in both directions. But um, it is is much, much harder and a completely different scenario than if you've got a patient and she's 40. So over 38, don't wait? I say over 38, don't wait. (laughs) Um, and, you know, in terms of natural conception, same. You know, if you, if you get pregnant over 38 and you have a baby, um, I would not be advising you unless you needed to, you know, for reasons we've already discussed, like having had a cesarean or having, you know, kind of postnatal depression and needing to have a bit of a break. I would not be advising you to use more than six months' worth of contraception, you know. Often patients come to me and they say, oh, I've been trying for 12 months. And I say, well, how long were you not not trying? You know, because actively trying. Yeah. Well, some sometimes patients come and they've you know kind of not used contraception for several years, but they've been trying to hit kind of the nail on the head, you know, by ovulating, you know, tracking, having intercourse around ovulation for you know a year or something like that. So it's important to ask the the background question. Other people are very literal and they're one hundred percent on you know kind of um, accurate on face value. So. Uh, but look, I would say that, you know, also when to seek help is important because sometimes, and this is not an uncommon scenario, people have their first baby naturally and then struggle to have another and that's what's called secondary infertility and often it's to do with age but sometimes it's to do with something reversible um, and sometimes it's what I call special combination factor that there are a few different things. The other thing is male sperm quality deteriorates with age so you might have been able to conceive with a guy's sperm when it wasn't so great when your eggs were better but now that... With both factors, it might tip the balance. So, you know, and we can work on that a little bit with lifestyle change and antioxidant therapy and, you know, other other strategies to, you know, improve um, a male's general health. So, um, you know, I would say if you're over 35 and it's been six months, even if you've had a baby before, get checked out because time is the most precious asset. And, um, you know, if you wait, it can be too late. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Knocked Up, the podcast about getting pregnant. For more information about Raylia, Women's Health Melbourne and how to get pregnant, please visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au or find us on the socials under Women's Health Melbourne or you can send an email with any future episode requests to podcasts at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. See you next week.